It's a Mailbag Monday. We've got tons of questions, including Cade Cavalli's debut, what's more important, talent evaluation or player development, uh, the highest upside top 10 outfielder, and what the impact to the minor leagues will be if the Angels sell. Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked on MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, baseball writer for Sports Illustrated. Thank you for making this your first listen every single day. And quick reminder, Mailbag Monday is entirely listener-driven. If you have questions for the show, I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. The show's on Twitter at Locked on Farm. You can email us, LockedOnMLBProspects at gmail.com, or leave your comments on YouTube and specify it's for a Mailbag Monday. Uh, Mike on YouTube, one of many people, but uh, that asked about Cade Cavalli and his debut on Friday. So, uh, got called up, made his debut against the Cincinnati Reds. You'll remember we talked about Cade Cavalli on the Monday mailbag because people asked if he had the potential to be an ace. And I said, hey guys, I think he's a number two, simply because it's so rare to actually have aces. And I have a question about this in a minute. But... Versus the Cincinnati Reds last Friday, four and a third innings, six hits, seven earned runs, two walks, six strikeouts, three hit by pitch, uh, total of 99 pitches, 57 of those for strikes. So the line looks bad. Let's acknowledge up front, the line looks bad. Part of that is he left in the top of the fifth with one out and the bases loaded and all three of those guys came around to score. But even without that, he still gave up four earned runs in four in the third innings. So there was things to like. There was things to not like. He struggled with the grip, uh, which kind of happens. I mean, it was a hot, humid night, but still, baseball's played in the summer. You just he has to get over that. Uh, three hit by pitches. I think all of those were were on breaking pitches, but when he threw them over the plate, they looked really good. Um, Manager Dave Martinez said the same thing after the game. And Kate Cavalli himself wasn't very happy. He said that he had to execute better and just didn't necessarily do that. But his pitch mix, I thought, was really interesting. 40% fastballs, 36% curveballs, 13% changeups. Um, slider and sinker together added up to 10%. And fastball sat somewhere between 95 and 97 Curve was about 85. Changeup was about 87. I think that he needed to throw the changeup more than he did. Part of that may just be getting behind guys, uh, not having a good count where you feel good at doing it. But uh, 13 swinging strikes, six with the curve, five with the four seamer, two on the changeup, and then 10 called strikes where, you know, just looking. Uh, five with the fastball, three with the changeup, and two with the curve. So guys are more likely to offer at the curve, but they'll miss it. Whether or not they they'll, they'll just they'll miss it no matter what. Whether it's the uh, the the fastball it had five of each. Whether they watch it or they swing at it, they'll miss it either way. But the curve, uh, the the changeup, three called strikes, two swinging strikes. He only threw thirteen percent changeups. So. Uh, want to see him do throw that a little bit more. 
And then obviously just has to work on on the grip, uh, work on being a little more comfortable. It's hard to to judge a first year, or I'm sorry, a, a uh, prospect making his first start in the big leagues. So much energy, so much excitement, the nerves. I mean, no no matter what they say, the nerves are always there. Uh, but they're going to get him through his bullpen, get him ready for the next start. Uh, it'll be on September 1st against Oakland at home. So I feel good about having a little bit of a another, kind of easing him into it with another uh, below 500 team before he has to face anybody tough. So all in all, uh, some struggles, but you can kind of see where the path lies. A little better command of the breaking pitches, uh, mix in a little more change-ups, and I think you're looking at a much better second outing. On the note of number ones and number twos and all that, Greenlight on YouTube asked, uh, you know, if there's only like 15 or so number ones in the big leagues, like who are some examples of number two pitchers? So, good question. Uh, to me, a number one pitcher, like I said, 15 or so, is the fe- is the guy that if you make the playoffs, you know this guy is starting game one. Uh, and you're excited about it. And you feel like you're going to win. Or you have a chance to win no matter who it is you're playing. If it's a uh, win or go home game, this is the guy that you want to have the ball. So when I think about that right now, the the list is pretty small. I mean, like for example, Jacob deGrom. Max Scherzer, uh, Sandy Alcantara just went a complete game against the Dodgers the other day. Like, he's a guy that I want to pitch game one. Uh, Verlander, I want Verlander to pitch game one. Corbin Burns, a healthy Walker Bueller is, do you, you know, it is an option to be a number one. I think Max Freed is a number one, to, you know, just as a Braves fan. Uh, a lot of baseball folks have him at, as a number two. They said the stuff of a number three, the mentality of a number one averages out to a number two. So for a guy like a number two, you're either looking at somebody who has really good stuff, but there's always something holding them back, or guys that haven't really proved it yet. So like a guy who hasn't really, like guys who haven't completely proved it yet track record wise, Tony Gonsolin, great year this year, candidate for the Cy Young this year. Um, isn't an ace yet. And I say that, look at Lucas Giolito. We thought Giolito would be an ace, and he has fallen to earth this year. Uh, Shane McClanahan, I think, is right on the verge of a number two, number one. He's somebody where you have a longer track record, but still, like, it's, you know, let's see it for another season before we're like, yeah, this guy's an ace. Um, Aaron Nola, to me, is a great example of a number two. You Darvish, I think, is a number two. Brandon Woodruff is a number two. Uh, Charlie Morton is a number two. Guys that are good, but they can get blown up from time to time, and you're not completely stunned when it happens. Like, if if Jacob deGrom gives up a five spot, it's probably the, the, the leading thing on SportsCenter. So, that's an example of number ones versus number twos. Uh, in just a minute, I want to get to a couple questions about farm system development and scouting versus player development. Uh, but first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends with the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. Uh, are you one of those people that thinks it's okay to drive stoned? What's the worst that can happen? I mean, you end up driving below the speed limit, right? Like, that's usually what happens. It's not a big deal, right? 
they want you to know that's wrong. The truth is your reaction times slow way down when you're high. You not only put yourself in danger, but everyone around you. You know, talk about a buzzkill. Dad joke there for you. So stop kidding yourself. It's not okay to drive high. If you've been using marijuana in any form, do not get behind the wheel. If you feel different, you drive different. And if you drive high, you can get a DUI. Okay, so Jeff on Twitter had a great question. Is having a great farm system more about talent evaluation or player development? So I had a chance to talk recently to a former director of pitching for a minor league organization, uh, kind of off the record. And, and my takeaway after talking to him, and granted, biased, but after talking to him, is that player development's more important. Let me walk through that. So. Right now, with draftees, the analytics are so strong, and we have so much information now. College players have been in front of TrackMan or Rapsodo, um, Hawkeye, Diamond Kinetic System. They've been in front of these systems. And so we have a lot of, I say we, MLB teams have a lot of data about them. And there is a strong correlation between what that data reveals and the the talent level of the player. Those quantifiable numbers strongly correlate to the actual talent level of the player. So that hurts traditional scouts a bit. Um, and a lot of college players have that. A lot of the higher level prep players have that now too because they go to showcases, they go to the MLB Combine. And so that's a place is like... As well, where your top, you know, your your first couple of rounds of the draft, those prep players also, we have all this data on, and so traditional scouts are still useful. Junior college guys, uh, lesser known prep guys, those are all people that that your traditional scouts are probably going to be the only ones who got eyes on them. We don't have analytical data on them, so that's absolutely useful. Flip side of that is the draft is only 20 rounds and there's only 180 minor league uh, domestic roster spots. So there's less opportunities for them to find a gym and put them into your system. Uh, flip that, you know, flip that around where your player development works with all 180 players and they have 180 opportunities to add value to your organization. So if my option is Average scouting department, elite player development, or elite scouting, average player development, you're going to get more impact to your system from the player development group being elite because they have 180 opportunities to improve your system. Whereas the traditional scouting guys, they may be able to uncover two or three or maybe even four draft picks a year that otherwise wouldn't have been found and get them into your organization, but they don't have as much in, like they just, that's two or three or four opportunities to provide value to the big league team. Uh, it, it, it's not like when you wait it, it's not the same. So I would take player development over scouting. Uh, the best systems obviously have a combined approach for both. 
the the scouts know what the player development group wants and are good at finding the guys that have the talents that they can work with. The player development is good at being able to articulate this is what we are looking for and to self-scout and understand this is what we have had success doing. Go find the players that have these attributes and we can make them better. So uh, the best way to get a great farm system is to have those in tandem. But if I had to pick one, I'm going player development. So Jim on Twitter had a question. At what point would you say it's no longer likely that a player will pan out? I thought this was a really good question because this is a uh, common topic that people ask. Like, well, how many chances are we going to give this guy? Well, let's, let's, you know. So there's been some, some, some research that, okay, back up. Before the research, most important thing to understand is that most prospects fail. We, you know, teams draft 20 players a year plus sign a bunch of undrafted free agents. They'll, they might put 25, 30 guys into their organization every year and they're promoting to the big leagues, you know, two or three or one or whatever. So most prospects fail. And I, on this show, I work with the understanding that we're going to ignore that they're most likely to fail. And we're going to talk about if they're successful, here's what it's going to look like. The studies have shown that within about two seasons, we have a pretty good idea, like 75% certainty of who you are as a player, as far as your ceiling and your floor and your likely and then your most likely outcome. Now, we can be wrong. Guys can blossom late. Uh, the younger a player is, the less certain we, we will be. Um, the, and the longer it will take. But on average, after two seasons, we have enough high-level analytical data, we have enough of a track record to reasonably project where we think a guy is going to go. For me personally, when I look at giving up on a player, so to speak, uh, and the actual question on Twitter, Jim referenced uh, Jared Clinic and Joe Adele as guys who, the question is, how long is it going to take? Um. The two things that I've looked for is one, when you don't see progress and how long have you not seen progress? So minor league players, prospects are going to struggle. They're going to have, you know, slumps. They're going to have issues as they develop. But the question is always, when do we stop seeing progress? How long does it take them to start making progress again? And then two, when have we changed the other variables on this? So, for instance, a center fielder. Well, he's struggling at the plate. There's things you can change, whether it's mechanics, whether it's his bat. Maybe his bat's the wrong bat for him. And then at a certain point, if they're struggling defensively, we can move him to right field or left field. So move a guy to a corner. At a certain point, he's had different coaches, he's had different equipment, he's had different offensive strategies, he's even maybe gone, gone through a position change. If we still have not made positive progress, that's probably just who he is. Uh, good examples of this, Christian Pache just got called, up, uh, called back up on Sunday by the Oakland Athletics, a guy that 
Atlanta always knew he had questions with the hit tool. He got a small snapshot in the 2020, um, 2020 postseason. Looked good. They're like, okay, he's turned a corner offensively. They put him in the big league outfield in 2021, and he was not ready at the plate. And they had changed so many variables. They had they had changed who was coaching him. They had changed uh, the levels that he played in, all of that stuff, that eventually it's, okay, this is who Christian Pache is. The last thing we can change is the organization. They traded him out. We talk about this sometimes, that guys need to change the scenery. Sometimes it's just at the point where you've changed every other variable. He may be a good baseball player. For whatever reason, he's not responding to your coaching. He's not responding to what you're telling him to do or what you're telling him to do is not correct. You know, it's not the best thing for him. And so the guy leaves the organization. Sometimes he goes to his next organization and explodes. Shane Boz was the player to be named later from the Pirates in the Tyler Glasnow trade. And Tampa Bay brought him in. They changed a bunch of stuff with his pitch mix. There you go. He took off. It was something where he had, he had reached his potential in the previous organization because he was being coached in a way that was not right for him. And they had good player development in Tampa Bay and understood what to do with that. Uh, Similar question, Anthony on Twitter um, asked about, can you explain reliever risk? And this is kind of ties into the, at what point do you no longer think a player will pan out? When we talk about reliever risk, we mean uh, there's something inherent about this player that makes us wonder whether or not he'll be able to be a starter at the big league level. Um, reliever risk is a couple things. So one, if one of their tools is not good enough to start, so like a guy struggles with command a bit, um, or if somebody has a delivery that is suboptimal and leads them to have poor control, or a guy has a third pitch that isn't very good and we think he might just be a two-pitch guy. Um, it's, it's things that for some reason mean they would not be a starter. Um, so guys that get, they get injured a lot because they have a, they have violent mechanics. That's something where you probably want him throwing in shorter stints. Uh, he'd be a reliever because of injury risk. Um, like I said, somebody who doesn't have a third pitch, he has a fastball and a slider, but he can't get the change of the curveball to be decent. He's got reliever risk because you can't really survive off of two pitches as a starter unless they are elite pitches. But you can be a two-pitch reliever and be fine. Um, guys who who just don't figure it out, like that's one of the things you can change with a pitcher is you can move them from starting to relieving. Guys who have velo issues. Well, often when you're not trying to go 100 pitches into a game, you're throwing 20 pitches in a game. You can throw harder. You can alleviate some of the velocity issues with a move to the bullpen. In just a minute, a couple rapid-fire questions about our top 10 outfielders list, as well as some individual players. Okay, so uh, DSC on YouTube says, of the top 10 outfielders that you did last week, uh, who has the highest upside of any of them? And he guessed that it was James Wood. Uh, and that's that is who I think it is. So you'll remember we did um, we had different tiers of guys. We had um, 
South Frelick, Brennan Davis, Pete Crow Armstrong, Evan Carter, and George Valera were the were um, ten through six. Tier two was James Wood and Robert Hassel, the Nationals, and Zach Veen of the Rockies. And tier one was Corbin Carroll, the Diamondbacks, and Jackson Churio of the Brewers. We did a Brewer show last week. James Wood to me is the guy with the highest potential there. If you remember, six seven two forty. Uh, at the time that we did the show, he had sixty eight games. Uh, and was hitting 322, 431, 556 with 12 home runs and uh, 20 stolen bases. Had an 80% success rate on that. And it's something great, like fantastic blend of power and athleticism. And when I'm looking at the ceiling of a guy, he already shows he has the speed. He has pretty decent contact ability. Um, the defense, we talked about him moving to right field versus center field. He could stick in center. I don't know. I'm just assuming he's going to move to right. He had the arm to play wherever. Uh, I, Me assuming because he was in the same group as Robert Hassel, he was going to end up moving to center, but he may stay. Um, going to have to move to right, but he may stay in center. And then the power. I think he had the better, the best power potential just about any of those players. And the one that would, if he reaches the max potential there, would have the best impact on the big league squad. Um, Now, he also has the biggest risk because, one, he's a younger player, uh, and then, two, your power is only as good as your contact tool. So, you know, bigger risk because he has farther to go. Him and Shurio both have a long time to go until they're ready. They're both in, you know, lower levels of ball. Uh, Shurio just hit, you know, high A at age, what, 18, 19? So, longer time periods to go but I do think Wood and Churio probably have the highest ceilings if they hit their full max potential. Uh, Jackson on YouTube had a couple questions about individual players. So first one was he wanted to ask about Hudson Haskin. It's an outfielder for the Orioles, 6'2", He was a 2020 second rounder out of Tulane. So I think he's got a high floor. Uh, he's a good defensive center fielder. Um, nice speed, good, like long strides and everything to it. Um, good contact ability had been great at steals until this year, 22 of 27 last year, uh, four of seven this year. So I don't, why, I don't know why he stopped stealing this year, but, um, this year, 271, 367, 466. The thing that I was worried about was where his power would come in. Uh, 13 home runs this year, 37 extra base hits. So he's found that that power that we were questioning when he's been at double-A buoy this year. And I think, again, high floor because he has good defense and good contact ability. It feels like he's sold, he's, he's done two things. One, He's worked on his launch angle. His swing was very flat, very line drive-ish. And he's brought it up a bit into more of a of a lofted swing where he can, you know, put a ball out. And then two, I feel like he's he's made a little bit of a trade-off for of batting average versus power. So he, he he's increased his slugging by 81 points. His batting average came down a couple of points. Um, his on-base percentage came down about 25 points. And so it's something where he's he sacrificed a little bit of on-base and contact for a significant increase in the power. Um, 
So I like what I've seen there. And I like, I don't, I mean, he's been at double A all year. He might get a late season call up to triple A. I don't see him at the big league level until middle of next year at the, probably at the earliest. I could be wrong. He could surprise over the winter, but that's kind of where I have it. The other guy was Blaze Alexander. Um, Shortstop for the Diamondbacks, 2018 11th rounder out of high school, went to IMG Academy, uh, six foot 175. And the thing here is he's gotten a lot more consistent. So cannon for an arm, right? He's always had some accuracy issues and it comes from the mechanics. And then at the plate, he'd been pretty streaky. Well, this year, combined stats in double A, 295, 362, 519, 14 home runs. 29 extra base hits. He's tapped into the power, but he's been more consistent month to month. I don't think he's had a month where his batting average was below, I think it was 260 from what I looked at. Uh, been pretty consistent. Uh, the big thing here is one, keep this consistency, keep this improved offensive approach. You know, that's, that's what we need to see. And then two, stay healthy. He's had three different IL stints this year. He had one in April, one in late June, and one in late July. So just need him to be, stay healthy. But I see him as a guy very much kind of like a Josh Rojas can now, where he can play anywhere in the infield. Uh, he can play second. He can play short. He can play third. Obviously has an arm for third. But somebody who they're going to be able to use as a utility guy can move around quite a bit. I may be wrong, and he may end up as a full-season regular, uh, but now I kind of have him as a, as like I said, as that utility guy. He can make all the routine plays. He can make some of the highlight reel plays and can hopefully play all over the diamond for you, uh, for the Diamondbacks. And then the last question uh, was from Tyler via email. If the, an- in the paraphrase here was, if the Angels were to sell, or Reno said last week they were, lo- they were considering that, what impact would it have on the minor leagues? So, one, they don't own, the Angels don't own any of their own minor league teams. Two of them are owned by individuals. Uh, two of them are owned by organizations. Actually, one of them is owned by George Brett. Like, Baseball Hall of Famer George Brett. Uh, he owns the Tri-City Dust Devils. Uh, yeah, which is the high A team. So he owns them by, by himself. And then he, him and his brother own the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes, which is single A for the Dodgers, uh, and then own, and then have a, are a part of ownership groups that own a hockey team and another minor league baseball team. So like, heavily involved. But they don't own any of their affiliates. So in the short term, not much is going to change. In the long term, if you're paying $2 billion plus dollars for a franchise, for an MLB franchise, and you're not getting the stadium. You're not getting the minor league affiliates. You're literally just getting the big league team. I would expect a lot of investment to come in for uh, towards player development, towards scouting, uh, places where Art Moreno didn't necessarily put the money. Uh, he put the money into big contracts for flashy names like Anthony Rendon and Albert Pujols. But they didn't have the proper money in, and they still don't, for... Um, for amateur scouting, for international scouting, for player development, um, all for all of that stuff. And so that's where I would expect, I expect the players, the quality of the players coming into the organization might get a little better, but then really the players would improve more in the system because 
uh, there's more investment and there's more tools and knowledge around them to do that. Great week coming up this week. A lot of fun stuff. Um, so if you're not already subscribed, click the, the subscribe button below if you're on YouTube. Um, and if you found this podcast, someone sent it to you, one, thank them. Two, do us a favor, uh, subscribe to the show, leave a review on iTunes. Always love those. Uh, and until we talk next, this has been Locked on MLB Prospects. Uh-huh.